First Timothy chapter one, verse three, Paul writes, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith, from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, Paul pleads with Timothy to stay true and to stand true to the ministry that has been entrusted to him, to the gospel which has been entrusted to him in verses 1 through 11. In broad terms, this letter to Timothy is a kind of blueprint for leaders to understand the church and its message. That's chapter 1. The church and its members. That's chapter 2. The church and its minister. That's chapter 3 and 4. And the church and its ministry. That's chapter 5 and chapter 6. It would appear perhaps that Timothy may have grown weary or burdened. He may have been suffering what we like to call burnout. We've all experienced times of trial, of difficulty, of opposition, of exhaustion, and want to give up some task which has been assigned to us by God's grace. And by the way, you have been assigned a task according to God's grace. Since God has entrusted Timothy with the ministry, that's verses 1 through 11, he's also going to enable Timothy to do the work that he's asking him to do. That's what we're going to discover in verses 12 through 17. This also includes equipping for the battles ahead in verses 18 through 20. Dr. Robert Gromacki gives this particular book the title in his commentary, Stand True to the Charge. In his brief but beneficial commentary, 
he basically points out and uses this particular passage as the jumping point. Stay true to the charge in order to stand true to the church and to its message. Timothy is going to have to affirm the message of the gospel and then resist false teachers and false teaching that's crept into the church. Is it possible that these false teachers were in some way playing some role, creating some problem for the young pastor, for Timothy overseeing the needs of the church, wondering whether or not he was the right man for the right place, at the right time. You'll remember Timothy is a young man and he's seeking to minister to older people, which, trust me, it's never an easy task. Don't let my youthful appearance fool you. It may be that Timothy missed Paul. It could be that Timothy, even in his own heart, was wondering whether or not he should stay in Ephesus. Hence, Paul says, remain there until I come. It may be that Timothy, like so many pastors and so many leaders, have been tempted to neglect their pastoral duties, to neglect their personal relationship, their devotion to the Lord. Is there a right time to stay and a right time to go? After all, Paul had remained in Ephesus for three years and then he moved on. Whatever conclusion you come to, in the end, the ministry is the Lord's. This ministry belongs to Jesus. The ministry that you've been entrusted with belongs to the Lord. Paul may have been the one that God used to entrust the ministry at Ephesus, but in the end it's God's ministry. And one of the reasons why Paul picks Timothy is because Timothy shares Paul's value, Paul's philosophy of ministry. He is able to articulate the true gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knew that false teachers would arise and promote their own peculiar brand of Christianity. And so Paul points out that false teachers teach false doctrine in verse 3. Engage in superficial, trivial, but divisive arguments in verse 4. False teachers are more interested in controversy than faithfully spreading the gospel in verse 4. False teachers turn away from the personal evidences of God's presence in their life to meaningless talk in verse 6. False teachers like the benefits that go along with being a teacher, but they really don't have anything valuable to say in verse 7. False teachers are willing to pit the law 
and the gospel against one another, not understanding the important role both play in the plan of God, verses 8 through 11. And so Paul begins right out of the chute about false teachers and their false teaching. Look what it says in verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other gospel. Now, I want you to understand what's happening. Paul and Timothy are together. Paul goes into the region of Macedonia, which is the northern part of Greece, reassigns Timothy, and then reminds Timothy to remain in Ephesus, which is in Anatolia, or modern Turkey. So urgency requires action. And for Timothy, that meant staying the course at this time. Sometimes urgency doesn't mean doing something new. Sometimes urgency means a renewed effort or perseverance under pressure to do what's already been done. The church's mission never changes. We worship God. We disciple the saints. We reach out to the lost. That's never, ever going to change. We should pause for a moment and ask ourselves this question. Lord, what are the responsibilities that you've entrusted to me? It might have something to do with your marriage. It might have something to do with your children. It might have something to do with their children. It might have something to do with something that I'm not aware of, but you're aware of. God has entrusted you with a ministry. Are you faithful in that ministry? Have you grown lukewarm or half-hearted? Are you suffering the temptation to have grown weary in well-doing? Do you have someone in your life urging you to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus? To remain faithful to the people that God has entrusted to you in your life? To remain faithful to the message of hope and to the gospel which saves? Timothy did not need to embrace the false teachings being brought by false teachers. But look what Paul does. Rather, he charges some that they teach no other doctrine. I want you to just think about that right from the start. Paul is going to go right to this issue of appropriate teaching. Again, just like the, we have grown weary of valuing the church, many people have grown weary of valuing sound doctrine. The word charge is a military term. It means command. This is a word that carries with it the idea of a lawful order given by a superior to a subordinate with the expectation that it be obeyed. Paul writes, charge some, not everyone, charge some. It would appear that the false teachers and their false doctrine may have been few in number, 
yet influential in the way that it had made itself in the, in the common fellowship. Well, isn't everyone in, entitled to their own opinion? <laughs> Not when it comes to the gospel. The answer is no. Not everyone is entitled to their opinion about the gospel, about Jesus, about the identity of Jesus. They're not entitled to their opinion about sin and salvation and what, what it means to have a right relationship with God in Christ. You may think that that's the case, but it is not the case. You've heard me repeatedly say over a number of years, if you're wrong about Jesus, it doesn't matter what you're right about. You have to get this right. You have to understand the human condition of sin and Jesus, the satisfying solution to the problem of sin, that you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself. When it comes to the gospel that Jesus lived and he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. It's important that we get it right. Paul says, teach no other doctrine. This is a compound word in the original language. It means of a different kind. Some of you are familiar with the word hamas and heteros. One means the same, hamas. Heteros means different. This is the word that's used here. Don't teach something different. And doctrine, it's a compound word. The false teachers were teaching doctrines different from the apostles, different from what the Lord Jesus was teaching. We're going to find that out later in chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And so when we talk about that, remember what we're talking about is what the Bible reveals about the very special nature and identity of Jesus. Jesus is one person with two natures. He's completely human. He's completely God. He is God who came down from a heaven and acquired a second nature, a human nature, so that he could live the life that you couldn't live and die the death that you deserve. Paul believed that doctrine mattered, verse 3. And the reason why this becomes so important is because we're living in a world where people say, well, doesn't love matter? Of course it does. Does it matter more than doctrine? It's very important that you understand something. Love isn't a substitute for doctrine. And doctrine isn't a substitute for love. Paul believed that love matters, and doctrine matters, and the truth matters. We need to be honest for a moment. What Paul is asking Timothy to do is difficult. But Paul believes that Timothy can and will do as he says. In the simple sentence, teach no other doctrine. 
It becomes a blueprint for pastors and leaders in every generation. Every generation teaches. We teach sound doctrine. That's verse 10. Look what it says in verse 4. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. So as you're reading this, what are those fables? What are those endless genealogies? Whatever they are, they seem to be fabricated, fanciful, inventions, manufactured by teachers who appealed to what I'm going to suggest to you are Jewish roots or mystery religion sources. In Ephesus, this is sort of like a platform, if you will. Remember, Ephesus is one of the largest cities in the ancient world. And in that ancient world, just like if you go to New York and you look out into the bay, you can see the Statue of Liberty. The Statue of Diana was never far from anyone's gaze. In Ephesus, it was a world. It was a fantasy world with gods and, and goddesses and all kinds of incredible stories and ideas. It may have included people who manufactured allegorical interpretations of real Jewish genealogies. In reality, these people were suggesting and putting forth teachings of demons posing as God's truth. So the controversies promote disputes, divisions, rather than godly edification, which is in faith. By the way, the word translated godly edification is interesting on so many different levels. It's the Greek word oikonomia. That may not sound familiar with you, but each of you are familiar with that word. It's come down in our own language. The English word economy comes from that word, oikonomia. The word serves as the root word of the word that we use to describe the way in which you conduct business and all of the elements that make that business possible. In this context, it means God's business. In what sense? It means God's word is God's business. It is the word of God that provides the economy of God or the things, and I'm going to use the term doctrinal truths that make life possible. So what Paul is basically talking about is these are the elements that make life as a Christian possible. Let me put it to you a different way. If I were to ask you a question, what makes life possible for you right now? Well, I've got to have an income. Well, that's true. I got to pay the rent. I've got to pay for food. I've got to pay for this and pay for that and pay for this. That's how economy works. There's an influx of income and then an outgo. I was listening to, of all things, a radio commercial where this person said, I was never very good with credit cards. I was using my credit card as income. You're, you're laughing, but let's go there for just a second. 
is debt income? No, debt is not income. So if a person goes, I'm using my credit card as a form of income, is it in fact income, even if you call it income? No, it still remains debt. Truth doesn't become false because you hope it's false. And lies don't become truth if you say it over and over and over again. That's what Paul is talking about. Paul is making reference to God's work, God's economy, God's management, which is in faith. That is, we define or refute or defend controversies by the Bible, by the gospel, by the person of Jesus Christ. So we think about life and death, existence and truth in light of what the Bible says about it. These are the teachings, he says, that divide rather than unite. The Bible doesn't teach that we deny or dismiss the truth. Paul warns Timothy and condemns those whose lives are a parade of controversy, of disputes, of nonsense. So at this point, when he's talking about this nonsense, what do you suppose he means? What could we put on the nonsense list? Well, you know, this is the time of blood moons. Blood moons is nonsense. Well, this is, I'm trying to think of all of the nonsensical stuff that just seems to happen all the time. Oh, one of my favorites. Prince Charles is the Antichrist. That's on the nonsense list. You're going to be getting a lot of different information from a lot of different sources and they're going to want you to put it on the critical list or the nonsense list. So what do we place on the nonsense list? Paul is actually going to talk about this. False teachers promote empty talk above love. In verse 5, look what it says. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith. Why would Paul give such a charge? Remember the charges in verse 3. Don't teach bad doctrine. Teach sound doctrine. Timothy is under orders. The order has been given. Teach the gospel. Teach what's right. Teach what's true. How are you going to do it? Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere. That means without hypocrisy, faith. These are the things that require constant attention and vigilance. Think carefully. When love is absent, when the heart is impure, when the conscience is defiled, and faith becomes a fabrication, that means we've abandoned the gospel of Jesus. Paul gives the charge to Timothy. Promote the virtue of godly leadership in the church. 
The goal of preaching the truth and warning of error is to call people to true salvation in Christ, which produces a love for God from a purified heart, a clean conscience, and genuine faith. Pause. What motivated the false teachers? Love? Not really. Purity? Not really. A good conscience? Not really. Sincere faith? Not really. The false teachers seem motivated by something else. Something far more sinister. It's self-promotion. It's self-exaltation. It would seem that they're motivated perhaps by curiosity. Perhaps by a desire to gain a following. Perhaps for intellectual credibility. The true teacher of God who represents himself or herself as a true teacher has to be motivated by love and purity, a good conscience and sincerity. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. You'll remember I've given you this illustration over and over again. I, I grew up in a world where commercials would come on TV and, and uh, ivory soap would say, It's 99.99% pure. What does that mean? It's pure soap. That means it's absent chemicals and deodorants and perfumes. So why do the pure in heart see God? It's because they can't see anything else. Theirs is a purity of vision. The pure in heart desire holiness over personal gain or even personal happiness. In order to love properly, we have to love from a pure heart and a clear conscience. We, we can't be driven by guilt and we can't be driven by sin and we can't be driven by pride and we can't be driven by personal gain. So when we attempt to love others without godly faith in the Lord Jesus, our love becomes hollow or sentimental or self-serving. And I have to define my terms. Sentiment isn't just a feeling. Sentiment is emotion without commitment. You can go to the movies and see a sad movie or a scary movie and you can laugh for a minute or cry for a minute, but it doesn't change your life. It doesn't change your heart. Sentiment is a feeling that you feel without a subsequent change. And so, why did you give that person money? Why did you give that person a job? Why did you give that person whatever? Well, it made me feel good. But that's not love from sincere faith. We serve people and love people in Christ's name in order to bring people to Jesus. Paul will write later, we present Christ. We present Jesus. 
We bring people to Jesus in the love of Jesus for the purpose of knowing Jesus and serving Jesus. Do we serve for service's sake? Not according to Paul. Do we serve in the hope that people will come to Jesus? Of course we do. Will we serve even if they don't come to Jesus? Of course we will. We're told to do good to all, so we do. To the people who are of the household of faith, but even to the outsider. Paul desires Timothy to teach and to serve in Christ's love and sound and sincere truth, just like a mother desires to feed her children wholesome, uncontaminated food. So we seek to serve people, give them sound doctrine and the truth that's found in God's word. You know, it's interesting to me, when, when God first called me to Colorado, there were a couple of passages of scripture that the Lord gave me. One was John, uh, Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. The other one was 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. This one. I read it over and over and over and over again. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and from sincere faith. Why? I kept thinking, why, why, Lord, are you giving me this particular passage? And then I discovered why. Because when I came to this place, literally dozens of people would say to me, why are you here? I'm here to plant a church. We don't need another church in Denver. There's plenty of churches in Denver. Are there plenty of churches that preach the gospel in love, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, in sincere faith? Does this place need at least one more congregation where the leader doesn't run away with the church secretary, where he doesn't steal the church's money, or make this his personal platform for wealth or notoriety. Is there room for a church? Is there room for a church where you worship God in sincerity? where you disciple the saints and you reach the lost and you do it over and over and over again. And so, do people need pastors and leaders with pure hearts, good conscience, sincere faith? What do you suppose the answer is? I think that there's a crisis like never before. In verse 6 it says, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. What is Paul describing? Idle talk refers to conversations that don't seem to have rhyme or reason or logic or benefit. This is talk that's irrelevant, that doesn't accomplish anything that is good or edifying. The word could be translated, idle talk could be translated Fruitless discussion. Where does false doctrine lead? In the end, it leads to darkness and deception and disaster. False teachers place 
personal ambition above the truth. Look what it says in verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Paul notes that these false teachers claim to have an authority. They say that their authority is based on the law of Moses. So they say that their authority is based on the first five books of the Bible. They claim the law and Moses as their source to promote their strange ideas. It would appear that these are either legalistic Jews or Gentiles who fancied themselves as Jews who are impressed with Judaism. Paul points out their presumption. They want to be teachers of the law. A role that's reserved for elders in chapter 3, verse 2. In chapter 5, verse 17. Later, Paul details the qualifications for leaders, for elders in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And so if they don't meet those qualifications, well, then they just say, well, I'm qualified based on God told me to do this. Even though they're disqualified in terms of doctrine and in, in terms of character. So are these self-styled teachers true teachers of the law? Not really. Why? According to Paul, they don't understand the purpose of the law. They don't understand the promises of the law. Rather, they offer a kind of legalistic heresy that suggests that salvation could somehow be obtained by grace through faith in combination with reading their book, doing what they say, observing the restrictions that they impose. I'm going to suggest that these false teachers acknowledge Jesus. If you say, tell me what you believe about Jesus. Oh, we believe in Jesus. We're Jesus lovers. Tell me what you believe about grace and, and faith. Oh, we believe in grace and we believe in faith. What else? You have to go to our church. You have to go to church on Saturday. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the law. There are 613 of them. And if you follow them, you'll be fine. And if you don't, well, guess what? You're going to be in big trouble. What is it exactly that they're affirming? That you're saved by Jesus. You're saved by grace. You're saved by faith. What else? And it's the what else that gets you into, into trouble. It's that what else. If the rest of the New Testament provides us with clues about who they are and what they're affirming, it would appear that these are what Paul calls Judaizers. These are false Jewish teachers who want to impose circumcision and Jewish ceremonies on the church as necessary elements of salvation. So false teachers pretend self-righteousness above God's gospel. Look what it says in verses 8 through 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In short, Paul's laying out the purpose of the law. The law is good. By the way, the word translated good doesn't mean good like opposite bad or good opposite evil. 
Here, the word means useful. But we know that the law is good. In what way? It is useful. In what way? Because it reflects God's holy character and will and righteousness. So the law is good in the sense that it reflects God's will and God's righteous standards. It shows sinners their sin in Romans 3.19. It shows them their need for a savior in Galatians 3.24. Quote, one Bible writer says, quote, the law forces people to recognize they're guilty of disobeying God's commands. And it thereby condemns every person and sentences them to hell, unquote. This is exactly what Paul writes in the book of Romans, where he says, guess what the Jews and the Gentiles have in common? They're both sinners in need of a savior. Guess what every single person on the planet earth has in common? They're all sinners in need of a savior. There's none righteous, no, not one. All fall short of the glory of God. The law has legitimate applications. The law is good, useful. It gives us direction for living a holy life. It offers direction, but not justification. That's what it says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 21. Paul told the Romans in chapter 7, verse 2, that the law was holy, but following the law would never make us acceptable to God. The law is holy, but is it, has it ever made a single person holy? The answer is no. The law guides us away from sin. The law guides us to righteous standards of behavior that make personal and civil life possible. The law convicts us of sin. The law offers us an opportunity to ask for forgiveness from God when we offend God and we offend each other. The law was meant to drive us to the sufficiency of Christ by the Holy Spirit because of our repeated failure to keep the law. The false teachers want to be famous teachers. And they want to be teachers of the law. So when Paul says, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So what constitutes an unlawful use of the law? It's when you pretend that it does what it can never do. The law can never make you holy. The law can never make you right. The law can never make you acceptable to God. There's only one thing that will make you holy, righteous, acceptable to God. It's the person of Jesus. It's that Jesus, the Jesus who's represented in the New Testament, the Jesus who loves you and died for you, the Jesus who walked on the earth, the Jesus who bids you come, the Jesus who invites you to embrace him and love him and walk with him. And so in verse 9, it says, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. And you might be thinking, wow, I don't want to be on that list. 
for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers and manslayers. On what basis is a person made righteous? Keeping the commandments? No. The self-righteous cannot be saved. It says in Luke 5.32, you remember the story where this person is praying and then another person is praying. He says, thank you God that I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you God that I'm a man and not a woman. Thank you God that I'm not like this dirty, rotten, gravy-sucking pig sinner. And the sinner next to him goes, beats his chest and says, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, I know what I am. Lord, I'm a person who needs help. I'm a person who's in trouble. The false teacher did not understand the purpose of the law. Paul claims the law exists not for the innocent, but for the guilty. The false teacher rightly believed the law was given to reveal God's standards. That's true. But the false teacher imagined that they could live up to those standards and please God. And that's false. And that's the point. These false teachers who believe in Jesus and they believe in the cross and they believe in grace and they believe in the resurrection. But they keep insisting. They keep insisting that keeping the law of Moses is essential to salvation. So Paul points out that the law, again, surprise, isn't for the righteous, but for the lawless. These are the commandments. By the way, he's listing the, the, the commandments. Paul gives a list of three couplets, six characteristics that point to sins from the first half of the Ten Commandments. These are the commandments that deal with our relationship with God. The lawless are those who have no commitment to any kind of law. Or any kind of standard. Which places these people in rebellion and insubordination. These are the people who have no standard. There are no sacred boundaries. Which means that they're sinners in regards to God's law. So Paul lists the sins against God. He, he takes this list, by the way, from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 11. And what's on that list? Well, lawbreakers and re rebels will not receive instruction or discipline. The godless and sinful who show no reverence or respect for God, but rather oppose God, they're unholy and profane. And so here's part of the point. He's pointing out people who look at the law, knows what it's, know what it says, and then just simply ignore it. Kind of reminds me of our government. Kind of reminds me of some of the leaders in our government. They will say that they believe in the Constitution, unless it applies to them. Or they say that they'll obey the law except they think that they should be free to break the law. 
It's interesting to me that when you live in a world that says the law is for some people, but not for all people, they claim that the law of God has no claim on them. And so if the law of God has no claim on them, then they're re free to redefine gender, to redefine marriage, to redefine and legalize rather than criminalize perverse behavior. Paul argues the law must be allowed to reveal the lawbreaker. Paul argues that it has to allow for the punishment of the lawbreaker. But unholy people are indifferent and sometimes hostile to the law. And so Paul is going to draw further from Exodus chapter 20, verses 12 through 16, those who kill father and mother could be more, you know, what could be more dishonoring to parents? The Bible says, honor your mom and your dad. In what world could honoring your mother and father mean killing your mom and dad? Can you imagine living in a world where you go, I'm going to do right by my mom and dad. I'm going to kill them. See, you're laughing at the absurdity of that statement. How could you say such a thing? How could you, how could you call dishonor honor? What could be more dishonoring to parents? And so he basically says in verse 10, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, which means you swear to tell the truth and then you don't tell the truth. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So when he's putting the list together, he's putting the list together and he's saying fornicators are on the list, sodomites are on the list, kidnappers, liars, and perjurers on the list. And then he goes, but the list is still not complete. And if there is any other thing, he's not trying to create a list that is a permanent list, or the way that I'm going to put this is a thorough list. Our culture has come to the place in our Time where we celebrate sexual expression and perversion as wholesome and normal. We live in a world that celebrates sin and mourns righteousness. The word sodomite is arson koite. It's sometimes translated pervert. It's a word rightly understood, an ugly word. There are powerful forces at work to try to legalize and then legitimize perversion. And those forces have won the day. We live in a culture that esteems sexual freedom and expression as the highest freedom, the highest expression. And the Bible teaches that it is disgusting and dishonoring to God. The Bible teaches that homosexual behavior is sinful, evil, wrong. People might be thinking, well, why, did you, why are you picking on homosexuality? Okay, sexual perversion evil, 
wicked, wrong, kidnappers. These are people who steal other people. We could actually put every sex trafficker in the category of kidnapper. It's evil and wicked and wrong. Liars, evil, wicked, wrong. Perjurers, evil, wicked, wrong. And if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, here's what you have to understand. Paul is making the argument This is harmful. There is forgiveness and hope and grace and mercy for everyone who will repent of their sin and trust Jesus. Paul charges, commands Timothy to refute the false doctrine in verse 3. He then reminds everyone about sound doctrine in verse 10. And the word sound there is a word that each and every one of you are going to know. It's the Greek word hygienia. What word do you think you get for that? Hygiene. Do I have to explain to you what hygiene is? If you're in junior high, it means you have to put deodorant on underneath your arms (laughs) when you get up in the morning. Deodorant is a good thing. Brushing your teeth is a good thing. Cleaning your body is a good thing. Yes, hygiene is a word that means cleanse and clean. Here, sound doctrine means clean. Hygienia. It means absent that which is not clean. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust, sound doctrine is the teaching that is according, listen to what Paul says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to Paul's trust. What is this glorious gospel which is committed to Paul? In that single sentence, it is pregnant with everything that Paul is going to say. In the entire book of Romans, in the entire book of Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians, it's in that sentence, it's everything that Paul says about the gospel and God. I could just summarize it and say, it's everything that the Bible says about Jesus coming, living, dying, coming back to life. It's everything that you read about in the book of Acts. It's everything that you read about in the correspondence of Paul's letters. So how do you recognize the false teacher and false teaching? The false teacher may seem to know a lot about the Bible, but the false teacher invites his or her disciple to abandon Christ and follow them. The false teacher doesn't usually come right out and say, I'm a false teacher. (laughs) They'll come right out and say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in grace. I believe in the sacrifice for sin. But there's something else. There's something else that you need that only I can give you. That's when you need to get up out of your seat, walk out, and never come back. 
because you're listening to a false teacher. The false teacher is the one who will invite you to love and believe and trust Jesus and something else. How can we protect ourselves and our families from false teachers and their false teaching? Well, we have to learn what the Bible says about these important issues. We have to learn what our faith, which has been once delivered, has been given to us. We have to learn what the Bible says about Jesus and what it, what it says about ourselves and our, and our circumstances. Safe teaching and safe doctrine can only be found within the pages of the revelation of your Bible. The gospel's simple. We have salvation and forgiveness in Jesus. We're tasked with teaching the Bible. And as my pastor said over and over and over again, we simply teach the Bible. And we teach the Bible simply. We're to apply the Bible's truths to our lives. How do we know if something is valuable or meaningful or helpful in the Christian walk? It will unite. It will edify. It will glorify Jesus. If it doesn't unite, if it doesn't edify, and if it doesn't glorify Jesus, then it's a problem. And some people might say, but what you just said divides. The moment that you say the Bible is true, are we dividing from everyone who says it's false? The moment that we say Jesus is the Lord, are we dividing ourselves from everyone who says Jesus is not the Lord? We have to be careful what we unite around to make sure that it's essential. And that if for whatever reason we choose to divide, that it doesn't, it's over something that doesn't really matter. So what matters? The gospel matters. Sound teaching matters. What you believe about Jesus and what you believe about salvation matters. Let me pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that there are many, many people who leave, they decide that the Bible isn't enough, that Jesus isn't enough, that salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, that that's not enough, that they need something else, they need something more. Lord, we pray that as we examine Paul's instructions and we take them to heart, that again, Lord, that we would be men and women, people who care about what the Bible cares about. That we would be willing to elevate what the Bible elevates. That we would be willing to pay attention. That we would be willing to expose what's right and what's wrong. Lord, we pray that we would take our cue from what the Bible says about these important issues. And Lord, again, I know, I know, I know that this is really hard. 
what Paul is asking Timothy to do is hard. It's to confront people who are saying things that are not right and not true. And so, Lord, we pray that if we are ever faced with that horrible task of confronting someone about what's not right or not true, that, Lord, you'll give us strength and humility and the ability to point to the passage of Scripture that says what is true. And so, Lord, again, we commit this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.